This morning we read from Mark 1, 21 to 34. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Good morning. Hey, I wanted to ask you to pray for one of our field staff, Dan and Monica Brown. They've been part of our body for many, many years, serving the Lord over in the Middle East, among Muslims there. And Dan's father passed away this weekend. Um, he had cancer, and so uh, pray for them, because they're far away from him at the moment, and uh, pray for that family, if you would. I'm going to begin with a question this morning. To whom do you give authority in your life? Who do you look to? Or what do you look to for authority? The world has changed dramatically in my lifetime in its view of authority. As your pastors gathered this week to study the Word, which we do weekly, by the way, we talked about this change in authority. We talked about how in the 1950s, people had a strong sense of external authority. There were people or institutions they looked to outside of themselves that they trusted and respected as being an authority in their lives, whether it was parents and especially dad that they looked to, like sort of the leave it to beaver picture of it, or teachers were looked up to as authority in those days, or even, believe it or not, pastors were seen in the culture as a whole as someone to look up to as having a certain amount of authority. Scholars, policemen, others in positions of authority. Think about, if you're alive in those days, how much people looked up to and respected Walter Cronkite in the news media, in the anchor, in the news, as someone of authority, that they trusted what he had to say. But through the 60s, as we began to have the whole attitude of question authority and the bumper stickers, question authority, 
People have felt let down by the authorities in their lives through the Vietnam War that they got us into, the authorities, and through the whole period of Watergate and on and on, people began to more and more question authority. And for good reason, often. (laughs) So today, now 2015, what do people look to as their authority? Well, essentially, we've given up on external authorities, largely. Uh, We look a little bit to celebrities, perhaps, or we trust the Internet, foolishly, (laughs) and everything it says. But by and large, we've turned away from external authorities, and we've decided self will be my authority in our culture. So we're consumed by self. We look to self to determine who is our authority. And maybe if somebody agrees with me, then I might sort of trust their word as long as they agree with me. (laughs) In 2005, Stephen Colbert coined a word, and it was voted word of the year in a couple places, including Webster's in 2006. And this is the word truthiness. Truthiness. This is how it's defined. Truthiness is a quality characterizing a quote-unquote truth that a person making an argument or assertion claims to know intuitively from the gut or because it feels right without regard to evidence, logic, intellectual examination, or facts. (laughs) Okay, so truthiness is essentially this. It feels right. I don't care what the facts say, what logic says, what intellectual reasoning says. I just trust my gut. You know, the Mormon religion has been doing this for years, actually, depending on truthiness. I remember conversations I've had with Mormons, and I've come to a place of saying, look, here's the facts, here's what you believe, they don't line up. And the person said very clearly to me, well, I just have an inner witness. Truthiness. (laughs) Our culture depends on truthiness. This creates all kinds of problems, right? Because whatever is truth to me is not truth to you. And so we're confused. We conflict with one another. But I have become, self has become the authority in so many people's lives. Well, this is the spirit of our age, but folks, we are created to be under authority. We do not function well when we are the authority. In fact, everything begins to break down in society when we become the authorities in our own lives. In New Testament days, when Jesus walked the earth, there was plenty of confusion about authority as well. Now, the Romans were in charge, right? They had authority because they were the military power in Israel. Of course, the Israelites didn't really trust them and their authority. It was an enforced authority. For the Jew, their authority was the Torah, the Torah. They, they believed in the Torah, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books, especially of the Old Testament. That was their authority. But, you see, it was very confusing because the law, the Torah, was interpreted by the rabbis and scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And so, every time the 
people, they didn't have the word that they could read on their own. It was in the synagogue. It was controlled by the religious leaders. And so if they wanted to understand God's authority, they had to go hear the interpretations of the rabbis, of the scribes. And so they had layer and layer and layer of interpretation so the people had no direct access to the Torah. They were confused about what to believe because it's all about what this rabbi says or that rabbi says. And the religion of the scribes and Pharisees was a dead and legalistic and hypocritic, full of hypocrisy kind of religion. So the people of the day were longing for some authority to believe in. They were built, just like we are, to trust in an authority outside of ourselves. But they were looking for some kind of authority, and there had been no word from God for some 300 years from the prophets. Into this void walked Jesus, who came with an authority unlike they'd ever seen. And in our passage today, Jesus reveals over what he has authority and leaves us with this challenge. Do we truly trust Jesus as the authority in our lives? Or do we still trust self like the world around us? Pray with me. Lord, as we catch a vision today of Jesus and his authority over all areas of life, Maybe we would be challenged in our own heart of what it means to trust in you, Lord Jesus, as our authority in all of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus first demonstrates his authority over truth. His amazing authority over truth. The passage today starts in verse 21 of Mark 1. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. I like setting the historical context for you. I want to show a slide that shows Capernaum today. Okay, it's a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. They've done quite a bit of archaeological work there, and you see the town there. Probably in Jesus' day, it was about a 1,000 people, a pretty sleepy little fishing village, but in the center of the town was this synagogue. The synagogue was the center of life, the center of community life in those days. And this synagogue that we see here today, you can walk in, it was built in about the 4th century, the 300s, but underneath it they have discovered the pavements and the remains of the synagogue from the first century that Jesus walked in. So it was in this very site, this very place that Jesus walked into the synagogue and began to teach. It's fascinating to go there and see that. I want to highlight also this building here, this big octagonal building that is actually a Franciscan church that's been built on stilts over the place, over the remains of Peter's house. And there's good evidence that this really is Peter's house. We'll talk more about that. But you can see how close it is in the little town, about a block away. And you walk through town and come to Peter's one-room house where you'll see that he heals Peter's 
mother-in-law. Closer picture of the synagogue here gives you a picture more of what it was like here, the synagogue, and how Jesus would have stood between the pillars there and taught as he walked into this sleepy little town to reveal himself as one having all authority. This humble little village is the place that Jesus chose to call home and to invest most of his time rather than in powerful Jerusalem. I just think this says something about the Father's heart, doesn't it? The Father has a humble heart. The Father has a heart that reaches out to those who are uh, rejected by the world, like you and me. So in verse 22, it says this, They were amazed as he began to teach in this synagogue. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus walks in and begins to teach, and the people are amazed. They're overwhelmed by his teaching. Why was it so different? Well, often, see, visiting rabbis would travel around to the synagogues. They would have their disciples trailing after them, and they would show up in the synagogue, and they would be invited to make a comment on the text for the day. But when Jesus began to speak and make the comment, unlike the other rabbis, the people were amazed. They said, there's something different. This man speaks with authority. That's what was different. This was unlike anything they'd ever heard. You see, the scribes and experts of the law, the Pharisees, were required to teach under the authority of other rabbis from the past. They were forbidden to come up with their own interpretations. So when they taught, they always had to quote rabbi so-and-so, especially the rabbi who had taught them and the rabbi who taught them and the rabbi who taught them. So they would say, well, see, according to Rabbi Akaba, this text is really talking about this. But in contrast, Rabbi Hillel would say this and They would spend all their time quoting rabbis. So the people were not really hearing the text. What they were hearing are the thinking of all these rabbis throughout time rather than hearing directly from God. The scripture would get lost in all the quotes, and so the people were left with these interpretations, but not the power of the word. But Jesus steps in, to the synagogue, and rather than quoting rabbis, he spoke directly from the word and gave its meaning. Probably the best example of that is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to read a few verses from that just to give you a taste of how Jesus came into the synagogue and began to teach differently. Verse 21 of chapter 5 of Matthew says this. Jesus is speaking. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Okay, so Jesus quotes the Old Testament, right? He quotes one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit murder. And you have been told by the ancients, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. There, he's not quoting the Old Testament. Who's he quoting? The rabbis. (laughs) So Jesus says, you've heard what the Old Testament says. You've heard what the rabbis say about it. But, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother 
You good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Another example, over in verse 43 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, a quote from the Old Testament, Leviticus, and you have heard it said, and you should hate your enemy. Not a quote from the Old Testament, (laughs) a quote from the rabbinical teaching of the day. So Jesus says, this is what the Old Testament says, this is how the rabbis have interpreted it, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And he goes on and explains more and more. He does this several times. In other words, see what Jesus is doing is bringing a completely new authority. He says, yeah, here's what the Old Testament says. Here's what the rabbis say. But I say to you, and I'm bringing you the true interpretation of what God intended when he said, do not murder, he was actually talking about the heart. And let me explain what that looks like, what God really meant. Now, this was mind-blowing to the Israelites in the synagogue. No one had ever spoken with this kind of authority. How could someone do this? And they were completely amazed. Mark uses that word authority here. And, you know, we, we see it as someone who's sort of the boss, right? He spoke with authority, but this word is used in the Jewish world to talk about God's authority, supernatural authority. In other words, when Mark says, and the people were saying, man, this guy speaks with authority, what they're saying is, man, this guy is speaking supernaturally from God. This is not human teaching. They were so impressed by the authority which with he spoke. God is in this. This is true truth. (laughs) You see, what Jesus was demonstrating to them was that he had authority over truth. Do you want to know the truth? Look to Jesus. That's what he's saying. I think this is a challenge for each of us. Who do we look to for our authority of truth? Now, most Christians would say, well, I look to the Bible. The Bible's my authority, and, and, and it is our authority. Okay, we, we agree, that's our authority. But the problem is, so many of us say, well, I believe in the Bible, but self will be the authority over the Bible. <laughs> self will determine what I think the Bible means. And so our real submission is not ultimately to the Bible and what Jesus says. It's, it's to our own interpretation. People say things like, probably maybe no one in this room, hopefully, but say things like, well, you know, the Bible really, I understand what it says about fornication and, and you know, homosexuality, but it's not talking about committed, loving sexual relationships outside of marriage, whether heterosexual or homosexual. It it just didn't address that. And many people say that today. Well, frankly, that's just a lie. (laughs) The Bible's very clear. It does address those things. But so many people say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible, but I only believe my interpretation of the Bible. So their submission is really ultimately not to Christ. That's why I think it's so important we have an attitude of submitting 
to Jesus as the authority for true truth. Because if you submit to Jesus as your authority, you will submit to his word and how and what it says clearly rather than trying to make self in charge. I like the way what Ray Stedman quotes where he says this. He's quoting a psychiatrist, a man named J.T. Fisher, and the psychiatrist is saying, if you take all that psychologists and psychiatrists have put together and you could really put it all together, all that they've discovered... And if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and an incomplete summary of the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. As he goes on to say, we have held in the scriptures, and in particular he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the blueprint for successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. And yet, we look to psychology as our authority for understanding people. How foolish. But Jesus is saying, I have authority over all truth. You want to know the truth about yourself, about mankind, about mental health, about good and evil, about how nations function, how marriage works best, how to live as a single person, and on and on. Look to Jesus. And look to how he expresses himself through the word. And be willing to submit to whatever Jesus says. So it raises the question, are you and I submissive to Jesus' authority over all truth? Secondly, Jesus in this passage expresses his authority over all the spiritual world. There's an amazing confrontation here in verse 23 through 28 where this demon-possessed man shows up in the synagogue on a Sabbath. Now, that, I think, says something. It says something about how far the religion of the day had fallen. This Judaism that is supposed to be the place where God is in charge and he's, his word is going forth powerfully and the people are serving him, in that very place, in the synagogue, there's a demon possessed man. It shows how Satan had a grip on the culture. The life of God was being stifled by the religion of the day. The Jewishness of the day was not holding back the forces of evil, but Jesus shows up clearly to confront the forces of evil and to drive back evil and to demonstrate his authority over all the world. And this demon knows it. He sees Jesus and he says, Whoa, why have you come? Are you here to destroy us? Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. Jesus simply speaks and the demon comes out. And again, the people are amazed. Why? Because they saw something they'd never seen before. Someone who had absolute authority over the spiritual world. Now, We know that there were some kind of exorcists in the Jewish world. Jesus talks about that, remember, in Matthew 12, where he's accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul, by Satan. And he says, well, if I cast them out by Beelzebul, how do your exorcists cast them out? But 
But really, historically, we haven't found evidence that they really were effective, that they really were able to do that. And they certainly didn't do it as dramatically as Jesus does here. He simply commands, and the demon is forced to obey. This is authority over the spiritual world. In our struggles with the spiritual world, in our difficulties with our own flesh and how Satan influences us in our thinking, etc., we need to understand and remember that Jesus has absolute authority over the spiritual world. Now you may ask, okay, in the New Testament, Jesus was constantly confronting demons fairly often. He does in a couple places in this passage. How come we don't see as much direct confrontation with demons today? That's, that's a good question. Let me just give you several thoughts about that. Remember that Satan is a liar, a deceiver, a murderer. Those are his names that he's given in the scriptures. And you see, he would just as soon deceive us into thinking he doesn't exist because then he has free reign to plant his thoughts in us. And so in our rationalistic, arrogant, scientific world in which we live, we poo-poo the idea of Satan even existing. And therefore, he's able to more directly influence our thinking and get us consumed, deceived into thinking that life is all about money, materialism, living for self, making self the authority. All of those things are through Satan's influence. You see, by getting us not to believe in him, he has more control. (laughs) If you want to read more about how he does that, I think it's a brilliant description in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, about how Satan works behind the scenes to control us. But also note that Jesus was directly confronting the demonic world. He was taking ground for Christ and he for the kingdom of God and showing that the kingdom was here and out to defeat spiritual forces. So he was in the forefront of the battle all the time. But also I think the more we enter the battle, the more we stand firm for Christ and live for him, the more we will experience direct satanic confrontation. I have, I know a number of you have as well, Satan doesn't like giving up ground to our Lord. And then finally, I would suggest this. You see, certain cultures that believe in demons are more likely to be given over to demonology and more obviously be confronted by them. A a book that, if you want your eyes opened to how demons can take over an entire culture, there's a book called Spirit of the Rainforest. Fascinating book about a tribe in the Amazon where it was completely given over to demon worship, demon control, and the people lived in absolute fear, a horribly violent culture, destructive culture, and how Christ began to come in and make a difference and change lives. Spirit of the rainforest, incredibly eye-opening. But as we have more globalization and, and we have more people come from different cultures and we are impacted by different cultures. I think we will have more direct confrontations with demons. So do we believe that Jesus has all authority 
over Satan and his minions? Do we trust that he can conquer sin in our world and even in our own lives in his own choice and in his timing? Do we rest in his authority over the spiritual world or do we live in fear? That's the question for us. So Jesus has absolute authority over truth, absolute authority over the spiritual world, and then third, has absolute authority over the physical world as well. This is shown in this wonderful little story in verse 29 through 31 where Jesus goes to that little house I I showed you that the Franciscans built their church over, Peter's house. And he heals his mother-in-law. I want to show you a slide of just, this is how it looked before they built the uh, church, Franciscan church over the top. But this is a Byzantine church from the 400s. But they've looked underneath this. They've excavated beneath this. And there's this one-room house there, small house, that according to tradition, and there's no reason not to accept it at this point, this really was Peter's house in this very site, just about a block from the synagogue. And it's a tender scene as Jesus goes in and finds out that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And he takes her hand and he heals her, raised her up, taking her by the hand. The fever left her and she waited on them. Very interesting to me. You know, he didn't have to do that but it shows his heart of compassion, but also his power over the physical world. He could just take away a fever immediately if he chooses. And she got up and served them. Uh, Just a reminder that when Jesus heals us, when he chooses to do that, when he exerts his power over the physical world and heals us, it's not so we can just enjoy health, it's so we are freed up to serve others more. So let's remember that. We are blessed, like Abraham was told in Genesis 12, I will bless you so that you might become a blessing. So whatever health we have, we are to use to serve others and serve the kingdom of God. But this shows Jesus' authority over the physical world. Jesus was co-creator. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 1. It's a wonderful picture of who Jesus is, where it says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of of his power. Jesus was co-creator with the Father and he upholds all things with his word of power. What he's saying, I believe, is that nothing happens in the physical world apart from Jesus' control. He's that in control. No earthquake, no storm, no weather, no sunshine, no inversion, No sickness, your very heartbeat, and this one, and this one, and this one, 
is controlled by him. Your ability to listen, to see me and to listen to me right now, unless you're taking a good nap, you know, more power to you. But otherwise, (laughs) your ability to see and hear me is all controlled by him. We live in the scientific age and we just kind of observe what's going on and we, we forget that God's absolutely in control of every breath we take. He's intimately involved in his creation. He has absolute power over the physical world. If he removed his hand, the world would entirely collapse. There would be no life. This means we can trust that he is in control and has authority over what happens in our lives. Did God want me battling this congestive cough and crud that many of you have had? Has he wanted me to battle this for the last month? Well, either I believe he's in control or not. So yes, I believe he did want me battling this. Why? Well, he wants to bring healing, but he wants to bring a greater healing to my soul than just physical healing. And so... His timing is working it out according to his purposes. He's working out a greater plan. And so what he calls me to is to trust his authority over the physical world, including my health, and to trust that he is working out his purposes and he will give me what I need to endure. So I can trust him. Jesus has absolute authority over the physical world. Well, today few people trust in human authorities because we don't trust their motives, right? They're out for their own gain. They're selfish. So we don't trust authorities around us. But Jesus, over and over again in the Scriptures, and even in these last few verses, 32 through 34, we see him healing all kinds of people, of demons, and healing them physically, doing all kinds of wonderful things to show that His authority is used for our good and for the good of the kingdom of God. We can trust in his purposes because his purpose is to restore creation and to restore us to what he created us to be. So we can trust he'll use his authority to bless his people and his creation as he recreates and establishes the kingdom of God. This is unlike any human authority. We were built, we were made to trust an authority outside of us and we were made to trust Jesus. Now I want to conclude with a final thought. This has often been called the immediately chapter. (laughs) The Greek word immediately Euthus occurs in this chapter more than any other chapter in the scriptures. Occurs 11 times. You see Jesus doing things immediately. He immediately went here. He immediately went there. He immediately touched a man we'll see next week and the leprosy left him immediately. You see Jesus has authority and he can do things immediately. But I don't know about you, but this raises a question for me. Well, if Jesus has all authority over the physical world and the spiritual world and all of that, and he loves to act immediately and his purpose is to heal creation and heal his people, then why doesn't he act immediately in my life and in the life life of those I pray for? 
Well, sometimes Jesus does. Sometimes he works miraculously and heals immediately. But as you know, often he doesn't heal immediately in our lives or in those we pray for and love. Well, let me say a couple things. Jesus didn't heal everyone in New Testament times. He only healed a few to demonstrate his authority. And he is healing today, sometimes miraculously, sometimes through doctors and medicines. (laughs) But I think a key for us to remember is Jesus' words, his first recorded words in the book of Mark we looked at last week. Verse 15 and verse 17. Let me read those for you again. As Jesus preached, it says he preached this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has arrived. Keep repenting and keep believing in the gospel. As I said last week, those are ongoing terms. This is how we live the Christian life, is we keep repenting and keep believing. In other words, it's a process of growth. If Jesus healed us immediately, there would be no process. And there would be no growth in faith, in trust, in relationship with him. So he takes his time. It's a process. Each step of the way he touches our lives is miraculous. But it is a process. Then in verse 17, Jesus said to them, to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Notice what he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Again, it's a process of being transformed. That is God's plan. This passage that we've looked at today shows us Jesus is absolutely capable. He has all authority. He could transform us immediately. But in his greater plan of wanting us to learn to walk with him and trust him and know him in a way we could never know him any other way, he works through the process uses his authority and his power to transform us over time as we learn to trust him so that ultimately the kingdom is established, we are transformed, and we deepen in our faith and our love for him. So God works all things together for good. He has all power, and we can trust him to use that authority and that power over time to increase our faith and make us more like Jesus. Each step of the way is a miraculous expression of his absolute power over truth, over the spiritual world, and over the physical world. So the question for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is will we trust him to use his authority wisely for his greater purposes? And we will, con- will we continue to persevere and trust him in the midst of the process? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, have all authority. May we trust you as the one who has all truth, all power over the spiritual world, and all power over the physical world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.